Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, thanks again for coming back for another great episode ahead today as we journey through the vascular disorders. As I've mentioned before, many of these vascular rashes can have serious morbidity and mortality, so we can really make a big difference by getting the diagnosis right and initiating proper treatment. Today, we'll be discussing the toxin-mediated rashes. These patients are sick, so oftentimes these patients are seen in the hospital setting. Hello, doctor. We've got a consult in the ER. Patient name Herbert Sherbertson. Consult is for end-stage writings. Have a very merry Saturday, doctor. So like I mentioned in the last episode, when you get a consult for concern of Stevens-Johnson syndrome or TEN, you cannot get tunnel vision and have to keep a broad differential, which will include many of the toxin-mediated disorders that we'll discuss today. So we'll be going over staph scalded skin syndrome, toxic shock syndrome, Kawasaki disease, and scarlet fever. Let's quick start with our reaction patterns review and our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. All right, the five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. And we're currently going through the vascular disorders, which we've broken into eight subgroups, including one, erythema multiforme, two, the toxic erythema group, including drug eruptions like SJS and TEN, the viral exanthems, and the toxin-mediated eruptions that we'll be discussing today, including staph-scalded skin, toxic shock syndrome, Kawasaki disease, and scarlet fever. And then in the third vascular group, we have the figurate erythemas, including erythema annularis centrifugum, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Then four, we have urticaria, five, vasculitis, six, vasculopathy, seven, retiform purpura, and eight, vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. So let's continue through our group two toxic erythema group and kick off the toxin-mediated rashes, starting with staph scalded skin syndrome. Well, we're talking about toxin-mediated rashes today, not the botulinum toxin that maintains my chiseled look. What are the toxins that cause staph-scalded skin syndrome? Describe the pathogen. Staph-scalded skin syndrome is caused by a specific strain of staphylococcus that is phage group 2 strains 55 and 71, which produce exfoliotoxins A and B. So let's hear that again. Staph-scalded skin syndrome is caused by staph phage group 2 strains 55 and 71, which produce exfoliotoxins A and B. So what happens is the specific type of staph overgrows. They make a bunch of these exfoliotoxins A and B, and then these toxins travel through the blood to the epidermis where they cleave desmoglein 1 proteins that are holding our keratinocytes in the epidermis together, and then we get detachment of the superficial epidermis. 
So again, staph overgrows, exfoliate toxins A and B travel through the blood, and they travel to the superficial epidermis where they cleave desmoglein 1, and this leads to superficial skin sloughing. It's crucial to know this mechanism so you can understand that staph may not even be growing wherever the skin is sloughing in staph-scalded skin. It's also crucial to know that these same staph exfoliotoxins also cause bullus impetigo by the same mechanism of cleaving desmoglein 1. However, in bullus impetigo, staph is growing locally in the affected areas and releasing exfoliotoxins locally. The toxins in cases of bullus impetigo are not disseminating in the blood as they do in staph scalded skin syndrome. Okay, so who gets staph scalded skin and how does it present? While staph scalded skin is typically seen in infants and young kids less than six years old, it can also be seen in adults with immunosuppression or chronic renal failure since their kidneys are unable to clear the exfoliotoxins A and B that are in the blood. We think kids are predisposed due to their young immune systems lacking enough antibodies to protect against these toxins, or their young kidneys also being unable to clear the toxins. I'm a little kidney, short and stout. I can't handle toxins now. Then they start to build up and they shout, cleave that epi and slough it off. Clinically, staph scalded skin patients usually start with fevers and go on to develop skin pain, erythema, superficial blistering, and desquamation. We call it staph scalded skin because it looks like the skin was burned with hot water. The only burning I'm doing is driftwood for the campfire on the beach after a few beers at Salty's. So three nice clinical pearls to remember for staph scalded skin. One is that the rash classically starts on the face and can have radial fissuring around the mouth, the eyes, and the nose. Two, it often starts or is more severe in the intertriginous areas like the armpits, which makes sense because there's more friction in those areas. And then three, patients lack oral involvement because the mucosa has much more desmoglein 3 to compensate for desmoglein 1 cleavage. These are big clues to help differentiate staph-scalded skin from Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So again, three key features for staph-scalded skin include one, radial fissuring around the mouth, eyes, and nose. Two, the rash often starts in the intertriginous areas or is more severe in these areas due to friction. And three, patients lack oral involvement because staph exfoliotoxins cleave desmoglein 1, which is the predominant desmoglein in the skin but has a minimal role in the mucosa where desmoglein 3 predominates. Or at least that's the theory. So how do you diagnose staph scalded skin? And I guarantee Grumpy is going to ask you this next part. Will you see staph on the skin biopsy? Diagnosis includes successfully culturing staph from the blood, conjunctiva, nasopharynx, skin lesions, or the perineum. 
The primary site of staph infection may not be found, but classic sites of involvement include the umbilical stump or circumcision site in neonates, the nasopharynx or conjunctiva in kids, and from pneumonia or bacteremia in adults. The primary focus of staph may also be on the skin, but classically, remember, culture of skin lesions is negative because the toxin disseminates to the skin from a distant site. To diagnose staph scalded skin, a skin biopsy is helpful because it shows a more superficial split at or just below the stratum granulosum. The biopsy will not have the full thickness epidermal necrosis seen or the deeper split that's seen with Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis. And remember, biopsy of staph-scalded skin will not show bacteria because they're not there. Remember, the toxin is disseminating through the blood to the skin. Okay, so how do you manage your patient and what's the prognosis? Remember, prognosis is just a number that we are going to beat. Treatment of staph scalded skin syndrome includes antibiotics targeting staph, such as nafcillin, first or second generation cephalosporins, or vancomycin. Clindamycin has often been used because it not only targets staph, but it also decreases bacterial toxin production. However, some studies show that up to half of the strains causing staph scalded skin are resistant to clindamycin, so clindamycin should probably not be your primary treatment and is probably best reserved for patients that are really sick. Other staph scalded skin therapies are mostly supportive with electrolyte monitoring, IV fluids, and gentle wound care with non-adherent dressings. And remember, staph scalded skin does not leave scars because the level of the split is in the superficial epidermis and does not get near the dermis to affect collagen or the fibroblasts living there. As for prognosis, these patients actually do well once antibiotics are on board and they have a complete recovery within a couple of weeks. I add a little to my tattoo every time I save a life. Newsflash, I'm running out of space. A big chunk of that tattoo is thanks to this next condition. What's another bad rash caused by staph, and what's the toxin? The next toxin-mediated rash is toxic shock syndrome, which can be caused by staph or strep. Staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome is caused by toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, aka TSST1, whereas streptococcal toxic shock syndrome is caused by group A strep that makes strep pyrogenic toxins A, B, and C, which are also called SPE A, B, or C. So again, toxic shock syndrome caused by staph is due to TSST1, whereas cases caused by strep are due to SPE, A, B, or C. Whether it's staph or strep, these toxins act as super antigens and they cause a cytokine storm that leads to nonspecific T-cell activation in a very sick patient. And if you're keeping a list of these toxins in your mind, remember we've got staph making exfoliate toxins A and B, which can cause staph scalded skin syndrome or bullous impetigo. Staph can also make TSST1 leading to toxic shock syndrome, whereas strep can cause toxic shock syndrome by making strep pyrogenic exotoxins A, B, or C. So what is the clinical presentation for toxic shock syndrome? And how is it different for staph compared to strep?
The classic story for toxic shock syndrome is an otherwise healthy young adult who has a foreign body such as a super absorbent tampon, surgical packing for a nosebleed, or a surgical mesh that grows out these toxin-producing staph or strep strains. Keep in mind that cases can occur without a foreign body though. And once staph or strep starts to proliferate, they release their toxins and this causes the cytokine storm that I mentioned. Although both staph and strep can cause toxic shock syndrome, strep infections are much less common, but they are more severe with a much higher mortality of 30 to 60% compared to staph toxic shock syndrome, which has a lower mortality around 3%. So again, strep toxic shock syndrome is less common, but it is more severe than staph toxic shock syndrome. Clinically, toxic shock syndrome patients start out with sudden high fevers, headaches, GI issues like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and eventually they progress to hypotensive shock with internal organ involvement such as renal impairment, ARDS, liver impairment, and even disseminated intravascular coagulation, aka DIC. As for skin changes for staph toxic shock syndrome specifically, they will have a scarlatiniform rash that classically starts on the trunk and then generalizes. By scarlatiniform, we mean diffuse redness with pinpoint papules that look like goosebumps. The rash of staph toxic shock syndrome can involve the palms and soles as well, starting as erythema that later desquamates one to three weeks later. And unlike staph-scalded skin syndrome that we discussed earlier, toxic shock syndrome caused by staph can involve mucosal sites leading to strawberry tongue or inflamed conjunctiva. So what about the big bad wolf we call strep toxic shock syndrome? I've only seen one other doctor handle this without breaking a sweat, but he's one grumpy son of a gun. Remember, toxic shock syndrome cases caused by strep are much more serious. They typically start with a severe soft tissue infection like necrotizing fasciitis that can simply present with severe extremity pain, for example. And that extremity pain is your clue. Cases caused by strep are much less likely to have a scarlatiniform rash, and it's a little counterintuitive, but it also means that we're less likely to get consulted early for these patients who are less rashy. And as far as diagnosis and treatment for toxic shock syndrome, you want to culture the organism and treat with antibiotics and supportive care for any hypotension or internal organ involvement. And because these patients can have hypotensive shock with end organ damage, there will also be a big workup and a lot of specialists getting involved, which we don't have time to discuss more in depth today. So in the interest of keeping this episode concise, we'll move on to our next toxin-mediated rash, this time the kids with Kawasaki disease. First described in 1967, Kawasaki disease is one of the most common causes of acquired heart disease in the world. It's due to a vasculitis of small and medium-sized vessels and has a surprisingly high incidence affecting 1 in 5,000 kids less than 5 years old per year. It is seen most often in Asian Americans and the majority of patients are less than 5 years old and especially around 10 months of age. The diagnosis of Kawasaki disease can be challenging, and because it is a serious disease, it has become more common in malpractice suits, so we have to know it well for our patient's sake and for our own sake. Getting sued doesn't mean you're a bad doc. It'll probably happen to all of us at some point. But if you want to avoid it, connect with the patient on a personal level. And of course it helps to know diagnostic criteria and evidence-based medicine. So can you name the diagnostic criteria for Kawasaki disease? Thank you.
Kawasaki disease requires fever of at least five days and four out of five other diagnostic criteria. I like the mnemonic from the first aid book called Crash and Burn, with the burn referring to the five days of fever and the crash referring to the other diagnostic criteria. Again, for Kawasaki disease features, remember crash and burn, with C standing for non-purulent conjunctivitis, which is often bilateral and spares the limbus directly around the iris. R is for rash, which refers to a polymorphous exanthem that can be perianal and starts within five days of the fevers. A is for adenopathy, which refers to cervical lymphadenopathy of at least 1.5 centimeters. S is for strawberry tongue or other mucosal changes such as dry, cracked lips or erythematous mucosa. And H is for the hands and feet that are affected with edema and erythema. This erythema and indurated edema can be painful for these kids, and it often results in desquamation after a couple of weeks. So again, to diagnose Kawasaki's disease, remember crash and burn to remember you need burning hot fevers greater than 39 degrees Celsius for five or more days, along with four out of five of the crash criteria, which includes C for conjunctivitis, R for rash, which is polymorphous, a for adenopathy, aka cervical lymphadenopathy, S for strawberry tongue or other mucosal changes including the lips, and H for hands and feet with erythema, edema, and eventually desquamation. Right on. Well, we know what Grumpy is going to say. Anybody can memorize a silly mnemonic. So in preparation for him, which of those criteria is least commonly seen? And what else can you tell me about the real-life clinical changes for Kawasaki patients? I found it interesting to learn that the cervical lymphadenopathy is the least common feature in Kawasaki disease, but it is still seen in 50-75% to 75 of patients and is often unilateral. Some other good things to know. Number one is that the fevers usually last at least one week and do not respond that well to Tylenol. And although the diagnostic criteria mentions fevers for five days, patients will often meet diagnostic criteria for Kawasaki disease before that fifth day. It can come on very quickly. Some other pearls for you. The rash of Kawasaki disease can be more biliform, urticarial, or can have a scarlet fever-like appearance with sandpapery papules on a background of erythema. Although the rash is polymorphous, you don't typically see vesicles, bulla, or purpura, which is a bit counterintuitive since Kawasaki disease is a form of vasculitis, which usually results in purpura. And one last pearl for the rash of Kawasaki's disease is that, like staph scalded skin, it often accentuates in areas of friction, and especially in the groin with desquamation of the inguinal folds. Alright, alright. But you haven't mentioned the most important stuff. The stuff that's going to get you more saves and a bigger tattoo. What do we really need to worry about with these kids with Kawasaki? Probably the most important thing to remember are the coronary artery aneurysms that develop several weeks after symptom onset in around 25% of untreated kids. Coronary artery aneurysms are due to a medium vessel vasculitis damaging these medium-sized coronary vessels. 
And because Kawasaki disease is a vasculitis, these patients can have a slew of other systemic symptoms, including uveitis, arthralgias, gastroenteritis, irritability, and urethritis. Some other commonly associated prodromal symptoms include irritability, decreased appetite, cough, runny nose, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tummy pain, and joint pain. Roger that, amigo. So what lab abnormalities can be seen in Kawasaki disease, and how do we treat it? I've got another acronym for you. It is WATCH, which are the lab abnormalities to watch for in Kawasaki disease patients. W for white count elevation, A for anemia, T can either be for thrombocytosis, which remember means elevated platelets and is typically seen in subacute cases, whereas the T in WATCH can also be for thrombocytopenia or low platelets and is seen in more severe cases. Then we have C for elevated CRP and H for hypoalbuminemia. Again, the lab abnormalities to watch for in Kawasaki disease include white blood cell elevations, anemia, thrombocytosis or thrombocytopenia, CRP elevation, and hypoalbuminemia. As far as treatment for Kawasaki disease, the mainstays are aspirin and IVIG. The IVIG is typically given in a single 2 gram per kilogram infusion over 12 hours. Aspirin is given for its anti-inflammatory effect at higher doses of 80 to 100 mg per kg per day, which is divided into four doses daily. The aspirin is used until these kiddos' fever has gone away for two to three days. At that point, the aspirin dose is decreased to three to five milligrams per kilogram per day and is continued until the lab abnormalities normalize and the patient has no coronary artery abnormalities seen on echo. Kids are still sick, a second dose of IVIG or a dose of the anti-TNF infliximab is often given. All right, the return of the IVG, the original IG. Okay, so you got a kid with fevers, a sore throat, strawberry tongue, cervical lymph nodes, and a sandpapery rash. What else could it be besides Kawasaki? The last toxin-mediated vascular rash that we'll discuss is scarlet fever. It is seen in kids 1 to 10 years old and is caused by group A beta-hemolytic strep that is transmitted through respiratory secretions. Scarlet fever is caused by streptococcal pyrogenic toxins A, B, and C, which are the same toxins that cause strep toxic shock syndrome. Thankfully, we're seeing much less scarlet fever because the toxins created have shifted in the last 100 years from SPE types A and B to more type C, which is less likely to induce scarlet fever. Oh, and those antibiotics help as well. And how does scarlet fever present again? Although scarlet fever can be associated with strep skin infections, these patients usually start out with classic strep throat with fevers, chills, headache, a sore throat, red and swollen tonsils with white exudates, and or tender cervical lymph nodes. However, patients with scarlet fever usually do not have a runny nose or a cough. Patients may have petechia on their palate in scarlet fever, which is analogous to the Forsheimer spots seen in German measles, which are also petechia on the palate. 
Scarlet fever patients also classically have a strawberry tongue, which actually starts with a white coating over red edematous tongue papilla that is nicknamed the white strawberry tongue. Four to five days later, the white coating disappears and the classic strawberry tongue is seen. So if you're worried about scarlet fever, you want to get a good oral exam looking for three things. One, swollen red exudative tonsils. Two, the strawberry tongue. And three, petechia on the palate. As far as the skin changes go, scarlet fever patients get a classic sandpapery rash with fine macules and papules on the trunk and extremities. There may also be pastias lines, which are accentuations of the rash in flexural areas with linear petechia. Again, pastias lines are accentuations of the rash in scarlet fever in flexural areas with linear petechiae. The rash of scarlet fever usually lasts four to five days and then heals with extensive desquamation, which is usually impressive on the hands and feet as well. And another hint on exam is perioral pallor. So if you think of it, there is a lot of crossover with symptoms of Kawasaki patients in scarlet fever. So if you remember Kawasaki patients with the crash and burn mnemonic, you can just drop the C for conjunctivitis and remember rash and burn for scarlet fever patients since they get the R for the rash that is a sandpapery rash, A for adenopathy, which isn't as impressive as it is for Kawasaki disease patients, and then S for the strawberry tongue, yum yum, and H for hand and feet desquamation. Kids with scarlet fever can also have fevers, duh, it's in the name, but these fevers are not as prolonged and refractory compared to those seen with Kawasaki disease patients. And as far as diagnosis of scarlet fever goes, we rely on isolation of strep on a throat culture. We want to make sure we nail this diagnosis and start treatment for these kids because we want to avoid complications of scarlet fever. And what might some complications of scarlet fever be? The complications of scarlet fever include acute glomerulonephritis and rheumatic fever. Remember that we have the Jones criteria for rheumatic fever, including J for joint involvement with polyarthritis, O for the heart-shaped involvement with pericarditis and valve damage, N for nodules that are subcutaneous and on the extensors, E for erythema marginatum, and S for Sydenham chorea, which are flinching movements. So we treat to avoid all these complications, and treatment includes penicillins like amoxicillin, or if allergies are present, the macrolides such as erythromycin, clindamycin, or first-generation cephalosporins. Alright, so that's all I have for the toxin-mediated rashes. Since these are relatively uncommon, I'll let you all off the hook and skip the final summary. So thanks again for listening. If you're on your way to work today, I hope you have a great day, and I want you to try something for me. No matter how busy or stressful the day is or becomes, I want you to mindfully greet your patients with the biggest and best smile you can and see how it changes your interactions compared to the days when you're not mindfully doing this. I think you'll find that it steers the visit in the right direction from the get-go, and you'll be pleasantly surprised how it changes your day. So that's my wisdom for the day. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time for the Figure It Erythemas here on the Grenzone Podcast. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.